You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So just a bit of context first. First John, you'll find it in, uh, you know, pretty far to the right in, if you have a Bible, almost to the end. And First John is a letter written probably by the same person that wrote the Gospel of John. So from now on, I'm just going to say John because it's probably John, but he never actually says his name. But if you read it, it sounds quite similar to the Gospel of John, the, 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 the larger book about Jesus' life. And so John wrote three letters, First John, Second John, and Third John, and Second John and Third John, you'll see right next to it, are very short. First John is five chapters long. And First John is a letter. That's the first thing to remember when we read it, is, is it's a first century letter, and letters in this time are, are uh, somewhat a little different than you would think of a letter today, and mostly because it was their main way to communicate with people that were far away. So, in this scenario that the letter of 1 John is written, today, if the same exact thing were happening, you would probably f- call these people, or you would write an email, or you would go there on an airplane, uh, because it's a serious thing going on, and it's serious to John what's going on, and the best that John can do is write a letter. Once he's written a letter, normally what would happen is uh, the writer, if they couldn't take it themselves, and usually they wouldn't, they would send it with somebody, somebody whose job they had given to, to travel and bring it, which was a dangerous job in and of itself. Uh, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like if you were to leave today and go travel somewhere, but there weren't many hotels or no hotels, and there weren't places or easy places to stop and get food or find water or just sleep. And so John writes this letter after he hears what's going on, he writes this letter, he gives it to somebody who takes a journey to bring it to this community of people. So First John's written to a specific community of people, a specific church. We don't know exactly what that church is like, but what we do know is it's probably in modern-day Turkey, and John probably planted the church or somehow has a relationship of authority to these people. So John can't go there. It's clear that he probably hasn't been there recently, and he can't at this moment travel there. The next thing that's important is that the way that a letter is written in the first century follows kind of uh, um, a form, kind of just like how you'd write an email, maybe. I don't know how you write emails, but, you know, it's like, hi, blank, the content of your letter, and then you're going to sign off somehow. And it's very clear when you read the Bible and you start reading the letters in the New Testament that there's kind of a form that always takes place, whether it's Peter or Paul or even John in Second John and Third John. There's this kind of understanding that the way to correctly write a letter is to first give a greeting 
to, to announce who you are, to remind them of who you are. So they'll often say things like, you know, Paul, an apostle chosen by God. He's, he's setting his authority, reminding them, I've, I'm like a father to you or a brother to you. Don't you remember when I was with you? Then he gives the letter, and then he signs off with some kind of blessing, almost like the way that we end the, the gathering together. That's the correct way to do it. And John, in 1 John, just kind of throws that out the window. And so 1 John is an odd letter. It doesn't follow any of the rules of, of letter writing that John knows clearly. And even beyond that, if you were to sit down and read through 1 John, it almost sounds like somebody is like, can't get their thoughts together. Okay? He repeats himself again and again. His, his, his ideas and statements kind of flow in from one to the other to the other. When you read chapter 3 and it feels like, you, then you read chapter 4 and it feels like you're back to reading chapter 3 again. First John is an odd letter. The, the pro, most of the letters in the New Testament are written, they're written for specific reasons. We can read them as kind of just like the Bible, you know, and it's just like kind of truth passed down to me, which it is. But when when John's writing this letter, John's writing the letter for a specific reason. He's got specific people on his mind. He's got specific issue on his mind. And so the reason that people would spend the money, because it costs money to get the, 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 the parchment to write the letter, the reason that they would write the letter and put someone's life at risk to, to bring the letter is because they think very strongly about an issue that's happening. Almost always a problem. Um, First John's no different. There's a community that... that John is in relationship with, and he is so concerned about something that's going on in that community that he's willing to risk money and, and people's, people's lives in order to get this thing to them. What's the, le- the, the problem is mostly is that, and you, kinda, you see it throughout the letter as we read over the next weeks, that the, probably the leaders of the church or some leaders in the church or at least people who teach and have some authority in this church have have changed the message that they've been speaking, the message that John passed to them. They've changed it, and they've left the church, and they've, they've brought people with them, it kind of seems. So you can kind of picture this happening, this community that John cares about. There's this message that the community is about, about Jesus. Certain people with authority have stood up and started saying different things, convinced a number of people, and now have left. And John is concerned because of kind of the... He's concerned about the health of the community and the message, and he wants to remind them of what he told them at first. This is, if you read the New Testament, this is what many of the letters are written about. John, though, is an interesting guy. Um, He's more out there than Paul or Peter, for sure. He's less put together. He's got, when he writes the gospel about Jesus, he, uh, it sounds different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and it makes it interesting. John's an, an interesting guy. And there was, a, there was a specific problem going on in this community. And, and even when you read the Gospel of John, it's clear that, that John has this issue in mind as well. It's hard, to, it's hard to know this when you read the Bible, but 1 John and the Gospel of John are two things that John wrote around the same time. And it's even possible that this letter was written before that Gospel was written. And so when, but John's writing the gospel for a specific reason, to pass down his memories about Jesus. But in the back of his mind, he has these issues. It was, it's as if in our community we have some big problem. And so every time I speak, I start referencing the problem we have, reminding again. And the gospel of John and the letter of John are about this problem that's commonly known probably as Gnosticism. It's just important to know a bit about what this idea is to understand why it is that John's saying what he's saying. 
Gnosticism was a philosophy that developed within the time, the time just after Jesus, really, especially the second century when this is written, after the year 100. And what Gnosticism said, although there were many different perspectives on it, is it had a few core beliefs. And I'll just tell you about the ones that seem really like John's addressing. Number one, they, they believed in Jesus. These are Christians. They believed in Jesus. But what they thought was that Jesus as a man, if you know Jesus was a, a historical man that lived, that's not, uh, that's not to be debated. He lived, uh, it's clear from non-Christian sources that he did, and he claimed to be the son of God, the God, God incarnate. And his earliest followers thought the same. But what these Christians started teaching and believing is that the Jesus that walked on earth either he didn't really exist. Like you saw him, but he wasn't really there. I don't know how that argument would go over, but apparently people accepted it. It was like you thought he was there, but he was like a figment. Okay. Or that Jesus did walk around, but Jesus was like a shell. And this is closer to what I think we might even believe sometimes. Jesus was like a shell of a person. He was human. He would bleed. We saw him. But he, was, like he wasn't God at that level. Inside this box was a spirit. That spirit was God. So when Jesus died on the cross, just before, this is what they would teach, just before Jesus died on the cross, his spirit went away. So who died on the cross? Just some empty shell of a person because God would never die on a cross. There's a problem because it messes with the whole message that God would die for the sins of the world, suffer for the sins of the world. Now, why would they say things like that? It's because they had this underlying belief that the physical world was evil. And the spiritual world was good. This is getting closer to what I think we sometimes believe. So they would say that, that spiritual things, things that are unseen, that's the real thing. Plato taught things like this. Some of it is associated with him. That's the real. And what we experience here on earth is not only less than real, but bad. This leads to the next thing that they would teach and, and what you will see when you read, for, when we keep going through First John, John says extremely strong things about this issue and it's because this is what people are saying, that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do in life. The whole concept of sin is irrelevant to these people. Because if the body is bad and to be done away with, God will destroy the body. I will become a spirit and go to heaven and be kind of like a like a spirit angel or whatever the picture is floating around. That was their image. And so therefore, what I did in the body, what I did with my life matters little. It's already sin, you know, like I'm already sin itself. And so they would teach, therefore, that it didn't matter what you did. And so they began telling this in the community that don't worry so much about what you do because flesh and body is bad. In addition to that, um, I forgot the last part I was going to say. Well, basically, that the body was an error. That physical, I mean, think about this. That physical creation was an error. You wouldn't get that from reading Genesis. It's, it's pretty clear where their errors are. Because what they believed was that, and this is the next core part that you see. Therefore, if you asked me as a Gnostic how you are to live a good life or to become a Christian, what they began teaching in the church is that to, to get salvation meant that you had to attain a wisdom. This is kind of like a gray zone. It's not really clear how they would teach people to do this. But it was one thing was clear is that if we're all in this room, then maybe like, you know, 5% of us maybe will attain this wisdom. 
and all the rest won't. So you gain salvation by getting this kind of secret download. That's why they call it Gnosticism. Gnosis means knowledge in Greek. So they get this secret knowledge, probably about the things they're teaching, right? It's like saying, if you believe what I'm saying, this specific thing, then you're saved. If you believe anything else, then you're not. And if you don't agree with me, then you haven't received the download yet, right? So this is the kind of thing they would teach. And so what you got was you got a community of people that no longer believed that salvation was in Jesus alone, that Jesus wasn't really God and man, and that therefore it didn't matter what you did with your life. The most important thing were to be in this kind of secret group of people and get this kind of download of, of knowledge. It might seem kind of like irrelevant at first, but I think when you start reading the, the letter of 1 John, it's not irrelevant at all. And in fact, there's tons of very hard reminders that John gives, but you need to understand the background that he's not just saying when he talks about the, the severity of sin, he's not just saying that to say it. He's saying it because certain people don't believe it matters, which I think sometimes we don't either. So that's the context of First John, and now we'll jump in. He begins that which was from the beginning. So you remember, like he, he's not writing the letter correctly. He doesn't say greetings to my brothers in Asia Minor. I am, I am John. You remember me. He doesn't want to waste his time, it almost seems like. He wants to cut to the chase. So he starts with that which was from the beginning, and this is the subject of what he's talking about, what he'll really talk about for the whole letter. Um, you'll hear whoever's, I mean, I won't speak all these messages, but for the people that will speak some of these messages in First John to the end of the year, there will be some repetition, naturally, because John's going to keep repeating himself. And I want you to sit with that and accept that and not just think, ah, oh, it's the same thing again, because that's the whole point of John's letter, is he thinks people need to hear it more than once. And so this is the subject of First John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So he begins, that which was from the beginning. John's message is that there's something that's been eternal from, that has no beginning and has no end. And in this case, specifically, that has no beginning or that which was in the beginning. If you know the Gospel of John, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is almost the same thing. In fact, in Greek, the way that the Gospel of John looks and the way that you read First John, it's super similar. It's like he's trying to tie them together. It says, that which was from the beginning, and then it's easy to skip over this, but that which was in the beginning, and then fast forward thousands of years, however long, millions of years, billions of years, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard with our ears, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands touched physically. So he's saying is, look, this is the message of Jesus. That which was in the beginning, that which has no beginning, that which was with God in the beginning, we heard it with our ears. We saw it with our eyes. We looked at it, and our hands have touched it. So he's reminding them about a very core thing. And this is part of the message uh, that we're talking about, is that there is something, someone, that has no beginning, of which John is just going to start reminding them about. And that person that has no beginning, John says, I 
Okay, John, like an uneducated person in the first century, says, that which is from the beginning, I heard it, and I saw it with my own eyes. You hear him. I mean, he's a little, he's a little pissed, honestly. I saw it with my own eyes. I looked at it, and my hands touched it. He's saying, you're telling my people that it didn't exist? I'm telling you that that which was in the beginning, I heard him speak. And then he says, that person... I'm going to proclaim to you something concerning, and then he gives it a name, the thing that has no beginning, and he calls it the word of life. And so in the beginning of this year, I think we did a little section. We, did, we, we spoke on John chapter 1. John talks a lot in the Gospel of John about the logos or the word. It's also important, by the way, I don't want to talk too much about the context, but what, what the Gnostics believed is that they didn't believe so much in Jesus or God, really, who they bore witness to, who they worshipped, was what they referred to as the Logos. This kind of secret word, the secret, it goes with their idea of knowledge, the secret knowledge that's out there. And so what John's doing is he's saying, concerning the Logos of life. And this is part of the theme of First John, is this revealing of what life really is. And this is the part that I think is extremely, if we're open to it is the part that is extremely relevant. John says that there's something called life that exists that is different than the life that we, that we feel every day. It's a life that's eternal, that has no beginning and no end, and all the good things that we feel in life are kind of shadows of life itself. But that life itself is not just an idea. It is somehow someone that's always existed. So he says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. It's also just important to notice as we keep going that John, why does John think he has the authority to speak to them? He doesn't say, it's, I'm John, it's because I'm a leader, I'm because I'm a, an apostle, it's because I planted the church. Those things might be true, but what he wants to say is he sets himself up from the very beginning as a witness, it's the word that John likes to use too. John, even in the Gospel of John, doesn't really use the words that Peter or Paul or others use. He loves this idea of witness, and it's how he sees himself. Primarily, it's just a witness to something. And he's here to remind us about what he saw. By the way, John was tortured for these things. Okay, so it's not, a, it's not just something that a good ideas he has that he's willing to drop. He's willing to suffer and die for them. So then he says, the life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So you see what he does? I'm here to, I'm going to proclaim something to you now. The way this little section works, verses one to four, is he gives us kind of intro, then he gives us one statement, and then he's going to kind of say something just after this, kind of just like he said at the beginning. So he sets it up for this part right in the middle. This is what I'm reminding you about. There was a life that's always existed. The life appeared. This is another way of talking about the message that we're talking about is life has always existed. We are cut off from it. But that life appeared on our earth. That's the message. Now, there's a lot more to it after that. But that's the core of the message. We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. 
and he appeared to us also. I've talked about this numerous times, but the word life in Greek is the term zoe. This is what it means. All This is kind of the picture of the word. All life throughout the universe is derived from God. That's why I said God is life, the word of life. That kind of life is zoe in the Greek, and it's seen as something that God possesses, is what God is. And where it exists outside of God, it's coming from him. It's important just to get this. So it's possible to have that kind of life, an abundant life, like when Jesus uses the word. But when we experience that, it's always coming from God. It always comes from God, and it's always sustained by God's life himself. It's, a, it's, a, it's like one of the main characteristics of who God is. So I, we believe all kinds of things about God, but once our minds and our hearts come to terms with the fact that God is actually life itself, that becomes good news, gospel. God is not death. God is not, ju- not judgment, not in that way. God is not anger, not in that way. God is primarily life and then anything else you experience from God is coming from that. So you might, just not, you might not understand why it is, but it's coming from a source of life. So, the, so what we call the incarnation, I, there's a bit of teaching this morning just so you're set up for what's coming. What's traditionally called the incarnation is the idea, the picture, the reality that Jesus is, was pre-existing at all times that the eternal God was God, was Father, Son, and Spirit always existing. And then in a moment, on a calendar day, the Son came to earth. That's important. That's something that we don't, like, you'll see at the end here, what is it that I must believe? And this is one thing you must believe to be what, what John would call a follower of Jesus, or child of God. That you, you must come to accept the unbelievable that the God of the universe became a rabbi in the first century. Once you really start saying that, it seems a bit ridiculous sometimes. But this is, this is Christianity, the Christianity of the scriptures, is that that's what it is. And it's the unbelievable things, by the way, that begin to make it believable. Even the fact that God decided in his wisdom to reveal himself in history at a specific time, in a specific place, to specific people. That's what John's saying. John said, I don't know why, but I'm telling you that the God of the universe revealed himself to me and I heard him speak. And I don't know what to do other than tell you that and die for it if I have to. This is the message of Christianity and people are beginning to try to water it down and change it. But it matters and it matters because life is not bad. Life is not something that God is trying to get us to escape from, to go to another place where life is not bad or where things are not, physical life is not. Physical life, God created, and it was good. Genesis. God never was angry that he made physical life besides the the pain that he feels when people choose not to trust him. But the whole idea to create a physical world had nothing to do with the choice of, of men and women or of the enemy in the scriptures. Fully God's idea that somehow in the life of God, in his mind, in the logos, was this idea to create physical existence. And so, when Jesus, when God the Father sends the Son onto the earth as a physical being, what he's saying is that physical life, that, that life that you experience here today is good, is holy, is right, is broken, 
There is evil that exists in the world, but you will never escape from physical life. You realize, like, that's, that's, the, that's the realization of Jesus, is that what you see in Jesus, Jesus, like, walking around as a man in the first century, this example, what he did, it's very intentional by the Father so that you can see what God is like. When we die, the scriptures are, are, are somewhat clear that, uh, especially Paul says that when someone dies, they go to sleep. And it's Paul's way of trying to explain the unexplainable, that somehow there's this period of time in which the human soul, the spirit, is kind of sleeping. It's why Catholics end up defining this idea of purgatory, which is not in the scriptures, but it's a way to solve the in-between. However, what God's actually doing is at some point when Jesus returns and there's a resurrection from the dead, everyone will raise from the dead. Everyone. It doesn't matter what you believe or when you lived. The scriptures say everyone will rise from the dead and have a body like Jesus did, okay, where he rose from the dead and he could eat bread and he could walk around. Physical, like, and he looked quite similar to how he did before, but different. That's all they know how to say. That's what's coming. And what John's saying here is that life is not bad. And what we need is not to escape life, but to have somehow have the life of God to come back and infuse our world and infuse us. It's good news because in the Gnostic way of understanding it, even today, even in churches today, we kind of have this, this kind of assumed belief that I just got to get through this life. A lot of people have rebelled against this idea, but I just got to get through this life and then I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven and I will be free of pain and suffering and all that stuff, which is true. The untrue part is that you won't be a spirit. You'll be a person still. Another unbelievable part is somehow it's easier to believe that you're a spirit somewhere than that you are you still. And this is the part that John's getting at is there is no escape What's happening now matters. This is the letter of the first John. What's happening in your life matters. Your life has significance and meaning. Because we're living, literally, even though there may be great brokenness and great injustice and great suffering, life always has significance and meaning, and it's not to be escaped. It is to be healed, it's to be restored, and it's to be received. also important because John's saying that if you want to know what, like the whole point of Jesus coming is to reveal, Jesus makes it clear, is to reveal the Father. In fact, he says in John 17, that John wrote this too, right? So he says, he quotes Jesus as saying, I have revealed to you, Jesus talking to the Father, I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. It's not actually what I wanted to read, but it's good. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. I just went by it too quickly. I have revealed you, Jesus says. I, Father, I have revealed you to those you gave to me. And John wants to say that what John is revealing to his readers is Jesus, right? He's saying, I'm telling you what I saw and what I heard and what I what I touched, who I was with. He wants to reveal to them Jesus because Jesus revealed to him the Father. In other words, this is good, whether you're a Christian or you're not, just to understand this, that there is no, once Jesus comes, 
Jesus, the example of Jesus, the real person who lived that you can read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the image of God on the earth. So when we hear what God is like, or you fear what God is like, those things don't have authority. What has authority is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We have a way of divorcing you know, the spiritual from the practical or the, the human. And what John's trying to say is it matters. It, it literally, everything that Jesus did matters. Every day he woke up, everything we have recorded, what he did matters because that was a revelation of what God is like. There is no more true revelation of what God is like than the life of Jesus. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the Father is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. And it's interesting because with all the issues, rightfully, that people have with Christianity and the history of Christianity, that one thing that people tend not to have a problem with is Jesus. They might not believe he actually existed. This one's silly. They might not believe that he was who he said he was. That's understandable. They might not understand what he was saying, but one thing's for sure is that people find him attractive. They find him loving. They find him wise. There's something about Jesus that's different than everyone else, and that's intentional. It's because it's the eternal life made visible in the world, which is why the person of Jesus matters. Says, he says uh, intentionally, the life of God himself. So he's talking about Jesus, right? But he wants to clarify. He doesn't even use Jesus' name yet, intentionally. He's saying there is an eternal life as if it, if it was a thing, right? Like, I feel this lately too, this kind of like, there is a, there is a deep desire in human beings not to waste life. Some people. We all have different ways of, all different brokenness. And so some people want to be done with life. And some people fear they'll miss something in life. And some people strive to make something of their life because there is this deep knowledge, remembrance of the fact that what's happening now matters deeply. Whether we rebel against it or we try really hard to succeed at it. And what he's saying is that what we think of as life, that there's something, it's hard because it's the same word, but there's something called life that that is kind of like a shadow of. So it's understandable. Whether it's broken, it's understandable that life would be unbearable because life is powerful and broken. It's understandable that it would be unbearable. And it's understandable that there would be a part of us that's striving to make something of it. Whether that's healthy or unhealthy, it's understandable because life is a gift from God. It's what we have. And it's a gift from God in that it's literally from God. In Genesis chapter 1, before there's brokenness, God breathes into Adam to give him zoe. And before this, he's like a, a lump of clay or dirt on the ground, and it's a picture of the fact that without this life, there is no life. There is no concept of a living human being apart from what God can give them, which should show us his grace right now too. The fact that human beings are alive is because of the fact that God is giving them life no matter who you are, where you're from, what you believe. And so what John's saying is that that search for life, for meaning in life, is a search for God. Whether we believe in him or not, it's a search for God, and the best things about life are, are great, the grace of God come. Whether we found that life is unbearable, or we found that it's something to win and strive at, or it's just something we feel lost in, he's saying all of that is a shadow of the fact that we were made to really have life. Why Jesus says, I've come to give you abundant life. I've come to give you life itself. The good news is that this is something that you're supposed to experience now. 
And when we start understanding what John means by eternal life, he's saying, I come that you might experience eternal life, the eternal, never-ending life of God. Now, if it's eternal, why are we waiting till we die to have it? It's for now. It's not a judgment, by the way, if we don't receive that. I often don't feel like I am in touch with something called never-ending life. But what John is saying is that the message of the good news is good news because it can be experienced. So it appeared. It's then seen. It's then witnessed of. Okay, It's testified to. And then it's proclaimed. And this is the kind of process that everyone goes through is that there must be some kind of appearing, some kind of manifestation, some kind of like light switch going on. Ah, that he is who he said he was. And then I, I see it and I become a witness to it. And this is how God works, is that he works through the world, again, against this Gnostic idea that there's this download of secret information. He works in the world through human beings, almost only. He reveals himself in flesh and blood that dies on a cross. He reveals that to a bunch of uneducated, misfit kind of people who are then supposed to go tell other people what they saw, of which many people didn't trust them, of course. It's all he's got. All he's got is, I saw him, I touched him, I heard him, I'm telling you, it's the case. And it's because God still wants to do revealing. He still wants to do the the manifesting, the revealing, the appearing to people who then witness to that. I'm telling you, that I've met God. And I'm telling you that he's given me life like I didn't have before. And I'm telling you that even now, in the midst of difficulty, that I feel life sustaining me. He's saying that's how he, and then it's proclaimed like that. And it's that's how he wants to work. Not through someone on their own, just through this download of secret information, but real people in the world bearing witness to what they've experienced, even in part. And so he says at the end, we proclaim to you And this is his thing. Remember, he jumps right in this letter and he tells them right away, what I'm proclaiming to you, what we've seen and heard, so why? And now he gives his why. Why am I doing this? Why do I care to remind you about what happened? Which might seem like a small thing, that Jesus was a real man. So that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This word is the key word, fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia, which means when we say spiritual family, what we mean by spiritual family at the core, which is often possibly not experienced at all, is koinonia. It's this experience of, of a bond, of a communion, of a participating together in something at a, at, a, at a level that's deeper than just kind of we're part of the same group. You know, It's deeper than we believe the same thing. What it means is that I'm participating in the same experience of something with you together. Koinonia is, is like the result of something. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a gift like joy from God. And so he says, we're proclaiming this to you. This is so difficult because sometimes I wish that God would have made it much easier, much less kind of like, how am I supposed to do this? Because all that's happening is I'm proclaiming to you what's true. And therefore, you might have fellowship, participation, communion, a bond with us. And then he says, our koinonia, he's talking about himself and the people around him and the other believers, and he's talking about all of them, for our 
fellowship, our true fellowship, our true participation, our communion, our life is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. What bonds a community together is beliefs, but it's specific beliefs, a core beliefs about Jesus, not marginal beliefs, which are still important. The Bible is true or it's not true, and we should look at certain issues and decide what it says, but that's not what brings you koinonia. What brings you koinonia is, is gathering around the, the real Jesus, and the real Jesus is really a person. There's specific things you can say about him that are true and certain things you can say about him that are not true. And so John's, John thinks that the secret to life, the secret to fellowship, true community, is coming around the real Jesus. And he says at that point, when that happens, a community of people experience what he calls koinonia. And that, that experience of community, of fellowship, is not just kind of between each other, it's because our true communion is with the Father and with His Son, and because we all have that in common, therefore we're united. And this is why in the early church and today you get radically diverse communities of people. It's because although they come from all different places, they have all seen Jesus for who He is, and they followed Him, and because of that, differences don't matter anymore. Paul explains that in Christ there is therefore now no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. He says, in koinonia, nothing matters anymore. It's like I'm blind to that, or better, that I can actually see now who people really are in their heart. And so it's, it's just a celebration if we're very different. John says in uh, the Gospel of John, you guys can come forward actually. John says in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, he says, now this is eternal life. So he defines it. He says, this is eternal life, I'm going to tell you. The same person that wrote this. This is eternal life, that they know, they, us, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's easy to skip over this, but what he said was that eternal life, meaning life now, Meaning, the full, if you want to have the full experience of life, you want to fully live, fully be alive, fully be yourself, not go somewhere later. But now, what is that like? What would it mean to experience life like that? And he says, I'll tell you what it is. It's knowing, which is like, a, it's a sister to the word koinonia. It's, it's being in communion with, in participation with, in never-ending relationship with you he means it. He means it literally. That if somebody could live like that, that is experiencing the eternal life now. With the only true God, the Father and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he says, we, I've done this. I've said this. So John gets a bit abrasive later, okay? And he wants to make it clear from the outset why his words are strong. And they're strong because he actually wants one thing. He hasn't said anything about sin, about judgment, about anything yet, because he doesn't start like that. He starts with, I'm writing this that we might make our joy complete. And what it means is he says, it's like John has experienced, they say this a lot in the scriptures, I have joy. It's like first century way of understanding it. I feel joy, but the thing that would make my joy better, would make it more complete, is if you had that same joy. And if we both had it, that would be like overflowing to me. 
So this is the idea of koinonia, that if a group of people experienced that joy together, it would keep overflowing. And this would be life. And people, that would be so attractive to people that had experienced life itself. And so he says is that life is found in nothing else except in communion and relationship with the Father and the Son. And that that's enough. And so when people came and tried to change that message to be complicated and to be other things, he gave a warning and said, it's simple. It's very simple and it's what makes it good news. And we talked about last week, is that God has already done everything in order to give you life. And to have life is to look at Jesus and accept who he said he was and to receive it for yourself. To receive the good news that actually my life, not just later, my life now can matter. Not because of what I do or because of what I don't do. Not because of where I'm from or where I'll go, but only because of the opportunity of communion that I have with God as father and son. That might seem like, it can seem like, my experience of praying, is that what you mean? My experience of worshiping in a room, if that's what you mean. It doesn't feel like full life, you know? It feels a little less than that, I hope. What he's saying is that God is life itself, and that life has no end. The thing is that sometimes we limit it. We limit it to think that it's like it's been before. It's like the prayer time I had in the group. It's like the worship time here, which is good. No worries. But it's like... Is that, is that what he means? He means something way beyond that. Way beyond that. That's often not found in rooms like this anyway. It's found everywhere and anywhere. And he says that, that if you could keep pursuing that with your life, it's why Paul says later that I've thrown off everything. Right? We talked about that last week, I think. I forget. I throw, I throw off everything I counted as garbage because of one thing I want to gain. What's he talking about? It's not talking about just, I want to gain the right beliefs about Jesus. I want to be a good person. He means nothing like that. He means literally that I have found something in this person of which when I've tapped into it, for lack of a better word, I find life and I want nothing else and I'm even willing to give up my life. That's the great search is why does John give up his life for this? It's because he actually found something that maybe we have not found completely, but that John says is still available. And I'll end with this. John chapter 20, verse 29 in the gospel, he says, Jesus says to Thomas, who says, I'm not going to believe until I can see you, touch you, right? And Jesus says, go ahead. And then he tells Thomas, blessed are those, and this is like a prophecy of what's to come, not like a judgment on Thomas. Blessed are those who do not see, who will not see, and yet believe. What Jesus is saying is possible to have the very same experience as John without having physically seen Jesus. And so that's for us. I mean, when Jesus says that in the first century, he's thinking about me and he's thinking about you and he's saying, blessed are those who come to a place of belief, of trust. Literally, those people are more blessed than the people that Jesus is standing around at that time. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org.